You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast, as this week's guest is John Hancock. He's a former Marine who served in one of the most notable Marine units, 2nd Battalion, 4th Regiment, nicknamed the Magnificent Bastards for all of their efforts and their work in the first Battle of Ramadi in 2004. And John Hancock joins us on the Hazard Ground Podcast. John, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, thank you so much for having me. It's uh, it's quite an honor to be here, so I've been, uh, been catching up on... Uh on your most recent podcast and uh, and listen to some other uh, things that you guys have been producing. It's uh, it's it's just an honor to be in, be involved in this and to uh, help get this story out. Well, listen, I mean, th- thank you for taking part in it. Everybody has their own story, and that's the whole goal of this podcast is to tell the stories that people may not have heard. Now, for those listening, if you're wondering, John walked from Maryland to California uh, in support of his fallen comrades. We'll get to more of that later on. But tell us why you enlisted into the Marine Corps. I, uh, I was a Navy brat, born in Hawaii, um, and so uh, I moved all around the country and uh, and all around the world. And then when we got to uh, we got up to Maryland, I just knew I wanted to be a Marine from from a really young age. I, we were in a commissary in in Great Britain, and uh, I was standing by in front of a Marine, and and I look over at my dad, and I was like, "Hey, who is that?" And he goes, "Well, that's a that's a force reconnaissance Marine, and they're the most badass things on the planet." And I was like, "Well, I I want to be a, I want to be a badass then." So that just kind of kicked it off, and then from then on, it, it, I just didn't look back, and I decided I would be a Marine uh, as soon as I graduated from high school. Did your dad or your parents ever discourage you from doing it? I mean, was it something that they were like, that's cool, or what? No, no. We're, I mean, uh, everybody, every uh, male in our family, for uh, I, all the way back to, I think, World War One, we've all served in the military, so it's just kind of a kind of a no-brainer for us and uh you know he was just more than happy to see uh myself and then later on to see my brother go as well and we both joined the marine corps so that was uh and they, there was no uh there's no qualms about it there was no if ands or buts it was you know hey this is what they want to do and so go do it all right so you enlisted in the marine corps in 2001 and now uh, you know coincidentally four days after your graduation 9-11 happens that is correct. <laughs> I, so I, I basically joined in peacetime, and uh, four days later, the, the towers fall. Uh, the Pentagon's hit, and a plane goes down in Pennsylvania. And uh, so the world starts um, almost becoming on fire a little bit, and uh, kind of just a, a real big realization that you are no longer in peacetime, and there's, uh, you don't know what's going to happen yet, and you're a, you know, you're a lowly PFC, so you're you know small cog in the machine but at the end of the day you realize something else is going on and and you've got to be prepared for it so were you still at paris island when you saw the towers fall no i was uh, i was actually on boot camp leave i was up in maryland uh in a little town called crofton about 10 minutes from annapolis mm-hmm. and uh i was on boot camp leave just i woke up late from a hangover <laughs> <laughs> it was a monday night then you were out you were out partying on a monday night because 9-11 was on a tuesday and so when you're watching all of this go on on TV, uh, I mean, is there like a sinking feeling? Because you get this sense Marines are a little bit more uh, unspooled than most of the military. A lot of Marines would be like, hell yeah, this is it, we're ready to go kind of deal. What was your initial reaction? You know, the only one at, at the house at the time was my mother. And uh, when she came in, she said, you know, they just flew a plane into the World Trade Center. And I was like, man, what? And the first thought that went through my head was, what a dumbass pilot. And then... I just kind of I got up and started watching the news a little bit, and then the second one hit, and 
immediately I, I saw the, the look on my mother's face and realized that something really bad was going down. And, uh, and so it, I, don't, I don't necessarily remember myself saying, hell yeah, like here we go, I'm going to war. Um, but I, 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 was, I, I guess I was ready for it. Um, I remember thinking uh, things are going to change from what you thought you were going to do in the Marine Corps, and you're just going to have to go with the flow here. So, um, you know, learn what you can and do what you can and be the best person you can be, I guess. All right, so where is your actual first duty assignment? Was it with 2nd Bat 4th Marines? Yeah, it was. So my first duty station after uh, after SOI, I got uh, I got chopped orders to uh, two four out in Fifth uh, Marine Regiment over in Pendleton. Uh, so I I went there for four years or three years, nine months ish, and then uh, then I lat moved to the O two eleven field, became a counter intel human intelligence specialist uh, for the next four four years and some change, and that was out in Lejeune. Okay, so that lateral movement when you moved over to be an intel analyst, so to speak, and I uh, just kind of give you some background. You know, wh- wh- Intel analysts basically, uh, I don't know what it's like in the Marines. I know in the Army th- th- there's a lot of desk work involved, but it's it's obviously analyzing information. Now, some of it could be going getting human intelligence. Some of it could be uh, phone calls, tracing things of that nature. What exactly were you doing in uh, in, in intelligence when you were with the Marines? So we're, uh, the O211 field is not necessarily an analyst field. It absolutely incorpor- incorporates something called uh, MDCI, which is multidiscipline counterintelligence uh, source reporting, things of these nature. But you're the guy that goes out and uh, creates new sources, creates new avenues to gain information from the populace, uh, be it the human populace, uh, which is why we call it human intelligence. Now, that's a lot of that intelligence and a lot of that information is also derived from uh, interrogation reporting and, and interrogations that we conduct. So Marine counterintelligence specialists and human intelligence specialists, we're lumped into one, whereas the Army uh, uh, splits those up into two. Um, so we're lumped in and we we're able, we're kind of a, a jack of all trades, if you will. We're able to do the entire gamut of, uh, uh, offensive, um, uh, human intelligence collection and things of that nature. So when you do that, you, you bring a new and more robust, um, platform to the table where you're able to, uh, gain the local atmospherics. And then you're also able to do the interrogations, uh, create new sources, um, and then, you know, go down the road from there. Uh, it's not necessarily the analytical side of the house because we do have analysts that support us uh, and are in direct support of us. Uh, so the analysts actually mull through all the information that we get as we disseminate it, and then they create the intelligence packages that go out to everybody. So how quickly after you get to 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, and this is obviously in 2001, do you deploy for the first time? First time we deployed was, uh, I want to say it was February or March of, uh, no, that's that's wrong. Yes, yeah, 2002, um, and we went to Okinawa. We were stop-lost, and it might have actually been July of 2002, um, but we were stop-lost for OIF-1, and so we ended up staying on the rock in Oki for a year, and we actually were in, um, we were conducting a bilateral training operation with uh, the Korean Rock Marines, and they, uh, that was the night, March 19th, when the first, uh, the first cruise missiles went off the boat uh, in 2003. So we were stop-lost uh, in, the, in the South Pacific, in the Asiatic, for uh, a year. <laughs> well, let, let me kind of just put this all together here. So uh, when, when people think of deployments, obviously they're thinking Iraq, Afghanistan for the war on terror or someplace else in the Middle East. As the Navy, you guys went out to a naval base in Okinawa, and you're there, and when Iraq kicks off in March of 2003, what was your guys' role and involvement? I mean, did you feel like 
frustrated because you were so far away from everything? Oh, of course. We uh, we had a whole mantra. It was 2-4, no war, man. Uh, we were the only guys out of 5th Marines that were not involved in OIF-1 uh, in the initial push for uh, for Baghdad. Uh, so that, that, you know, weighed heavy on us. And uh, the only thing we could really do was train. And, and, you know, our leadership would tell us things to the nature of, you know, you're out here in this area in case something pops off and we have to go do something in this area. It's, it's all about economy of force and really, you know, keeping strategic um, uh, elements in certain areas for the uh, the betterment of, of whatever mission may have to come down. Because uh, as, you've, as you've known and as we've seen over the past 12 to 15 years, uh, we tend to fight a lot of wars simultaneously. Yeah. <laughs> There's not enough on our plate. We'll just keep piling it on. At least that's what the Department right. of Defense tells us. But, okay, so through OIF-1, which and for those listening, OIF-1, you'll hear that a lot from people who have been in Iraq. That's essentially the start of the war for the first 12 months. So 2003 to 2004, OIF-2 was 2004 to 2005, OIF-3 was 05 to 06. So you kind of just see how it's just the way the military labeled it for some odd reason, and everybody kind of stuck with it. But So for OIF-1 through 2003 to 2004, you're in Okinawa. What point do you leave Okinawa to go somewhere else? So we left Okinawa uh, middle of 2003 uh, and then redeployed back to the States. Um, we did some uh, some training. All the senior guys that were getting out and EASing, they got out. Uh, we picked up our boot drop, and so we started spinning them up uh, for pre-deployment workups. And then by February of 2004, we were in Kuwait. Um, getting ready to push over the LOD uh, into uh, into Iraq and head up to uh, Ramadi. All right, let me give people some background here because you threw a lot of acronyms out there they may have missed. EAS is just your service time, so the guys who were running out of whose service commitment was up got out. Your boot drop is the guys who come back in. You get fresh Marines coming from Paris Island who are brand new guys, and then the LOD, the line of departure, is essentially it's a it, it's a line set by a unit or a higher headquarters or whatever that says, here, you cross here, and this starts your offensive, your assault on whatever objective you're going. And so when you cross your line of departure into Iraq, kind of what were you told right before you guys went in? What did you expect to, to see and happen? You know, ultimately, because uh, a lot of my buddies had been in uh, other units that were in OIF-1, uh, I had I kind of picked their brains, and I was fortunate enough to go to squad leaders course, uh, which is just a follow-on course to, to help with leadership and, and tactics that you bring back to your unit and help train your guys up. I was fortunate enough to go to that course with a lot of guys who had already been to OIF-1 to the initial push. So I was asking them a lot of questions, and, um, you know, ultimately I, I didn't know what was going on, but I was... I was pretty prepared uh, with the knowledge I'd gained just from speaking with others uh, and going through a lot of courses with them and, and understanding that not every person up there is, is going to be bad. You're not going to be uh, you're not going to be shooting from the time you hit the LOD forward. I mean, it's not going to be a complete ground assault. You're you know now we're going up for something called SASO, which is stability and support operations, and that's that's basically trying to. Uh, win the hearts and minds of the people and to uh, help them with the, their basic economic needs, water, food, uh, even uh, uh, holding or in, uh, at least keeping uh, some sort of civility and stability uh, so that they could uh, properly install new governments at their own will. So ultimately going up, I didn't, I didn't think too much uh, into the – of course, every Marine is, is in a combat mindset, and you're, you're getting ready to go up into Iraq, and this is about to happen. So everybody's, you know, watertight and wired for sound. But 
um, at the end of the day, uh, there was we didn't we didn't fire a single shot uh, all the way up until we got into Ramadi. And, and this is kind of uh, funny is not the right word, but just for people listening, it's weird because after the initial invasion, when all the fighting started um, through, you know, the end of 2003, that's when, uh, you know, a lot of bullets were flying, bombs were exploding, things of that nature. And then became in 2004, there was a literal lull. Like there was a lull mm-hmm. in the beginning of 2004 because after the war it ended and we remember, everybody remembers the Saddam statue falling on TV, everything kind of stopped because no one knew what to do next. So the Americans were just sitting there, the Iraqis were just sitting there, and it was just kind of this quiet time where nothing really went on. And then all of a sudden, right. the hornet's nest just got stirred up for the sake of that, well, their Americans are still here, and we kind of don't want them here, and so let's, let's go try to get them out of here. And the Iraqis started to fight back, and that's when the violence started. But let me go back to your LOD. Where, what, where were you physically you know, starting, and then you were ending in Ramadi, correct? Yeah, that's correct. We actually escorted Comm Squadron 28 from uh, Camp Victory, which, which is, is in Baghdad. Uh, yeah. Well, actually, Camp Victory in, was uh, originally in Kuwait. Um, uh, the, yes, the, okay, the original Camp Victory. Yes, okay, correct. I apologize. Right, so we, yeah, we started there, and then uh, we, we just drove this massive convoy of uh, comm squadron guys up to al Sakadam, which was an air base mm-hmm. approximately 50 miles east of Ramadi. And once we dropped them off, uh, we just beat feet right on over to, uh, to Ramadi. So that whole venture probably took us about a week to conduct because you got to figure that's a that's a hundred and fifty truck convoy wow. uh, with only with only three squads of an infantry um, company uh, and in, uh, in one in each seven ton and they're they're uh, dispersed at about a thirty to fifty truck increment or interval so uh, you know it, it's a slow going process. Well, I just need people to kind of visualize this for a minute. I mean, remember, these are big military vehicles. Iraq is not filled with a lot of these things. Just imagine in your small town, wherever you may be listening, uh, th- that you see just these huge military trucks just rolling through with big tires and you know making all these big noises and everything. It's, it's a very conspicuous movement. It, it's not something you do stealthily. So for the fact that you guys had to do that over the course of a week uh, and, and nothing happened along the way, there was no fighting, no anything until you get to Ramadi? No, there weren't any. There, there were no gunfights. Uh, there were a couple uh, halts for IED, uh, IED emplacements, and so EOD or explosive ordnance disposal came out, and they uh, they detonated those. Um, so, but we were we were fortunate. Uh, there were we didn't take any casualties on the way up. Uh, it was it was actually pretty uh, pretty humdrum. Interesting. So we've talked a lot on this podcast about Ramadi and. Uh, remind people, Ramadi and Fallujah, two of the most dangerous areas in Iraq for a better part of, what, four or five years there. Uh, so when you get to Ramadi and you get settled in, what's around you? What are you seeing? So we were in a, a town. Uh, we were in the west part of the town. Um, and that so Ramadi was broken up into three areas of responsibility, one area of responsibility per infantry company. So Echo, Golf, and Fox, I was a part of Fox Company. We all had separate areas of responsibility. Fox's uh, responsibility was more of Western Ramadi, uh, all the way down east to uh, the government center. And, of course, that's where uh, the transitional national government was there, and so we, uh, we took turns guarding that place. Um, but we were in a little, uh, little fob or a little uh, forward operating base called the Snake Pit. Um, it was three little... Uh, one-story buildings uh, that served as barracks, uh, one two-story building that kind of served as a, a command 
uh, a, a HQ, if you will, uh, and then uh, a couple more small buildings uh, and a building with a basement for uh, for more barracks and, and birthing type areas. Uh, we built a shooting range in there, but everything was walled by about a a 15 foot walled compound. Uh, and then we uh, we started building Hesco barriers. Now this is all uh, directly on the uh, on the Habania River, which is the split off from the Euphrates. And the Habania River or tributary fed into the Habania Dam area or Habania Lake, which was actually southeast of Ramadi by about uh, 100 meters. So we were we were on that canal, which was probably about uh, 250, 300 feet wide. Uh, so each side of it was uh, was a large dam, uh, which uh, we controlled the bridges to ensure that we could move uh, fluidly through those areas. How long are you there before the first bullets start flying and things start getting crazy? We took the first casualties for Fox Company in early March. And uh, it was um, PFC Dang. And then uh, uh, a couple others were in the back. But Dang was the only KIA from that. And and right after that, uh, it was, uh, again, another lull, and that was an RPG shot through, uh, through our Humvee and hit him directly in the back of the head. Um, after that, uh, everything kind of went silent again for a little while, and then uh, Golf and Echo's uh, areas of operation began to erupt uh, towards the late end of March, uh, sporadic gunfights, and then uh, we see a full-fledged offensive citywide um, Starting April sixth, the morning of. So we were we were there for roughly uh, roughly about a month and some change, uh, with some some instances nothing uh, nothing we weren't prepared for, nothing we weren't uh, kind of briefed on, uh, expecting almost if you will for being in combat. Uh, but then the real uh, the real heavy stuff started happening April sixth uh, through April tenth, and then after that it was. Just a, a constant barrage of, of either daily gunfights, daily IEDs, daily mortars, um, and so that was that was basically all the way up until September 12th, the day I left, uh, was my last gunfight. We always talk to people who kind of use the phrase a lot, you know, "real got real," and there was a moment just because, as much as you train and as much as you're around gunfire and things of that nature, when you do it for real, things are just different. Was there a moment like that for you where when the first bullets started flying, you're like, okay, yeah, this is real, let's go? Absolutely, and that was that was the morning of April 7th. Uh, I was on the government center. We had just come off. Uh, we had just come off post, and we had been hearing gunfire, uh, and then over the radio, a, a squad from Golf Company radioed and said they needed help. They were taking mass casualties, and they were pinned down in a building. Uh, we were approximately 800 meters from their position and the only maneuver element able to to get to them uh everybody else was engaged so uh we took off and just started running down the street and as we were running down the street we ran right into gunfire and and the uh the first shot it happened everybody moved uh and then i realized you know hey this is real real got real and uh and then you know when you're when you're firing back you you no longer think about um training uh, things kind of take over, and you know you train so much that it is a lot of it is muscle memory. Um, but nothing, no training could could ever take the place of truly being in combat and experiencing what that's like when when your little uh, your little targets actually shoot back at you. Yeah, and it's it, the funny part is is that it's different for everybody. Like 
I remember my first combat experience and the things that still stand out to me to it this day, I, I think it's different for everybody. Some people don't notice anything. Some people are hypersensitive and they pick up on the most minute details. Other people, as you said, training just kicks in. You don't really think you can remember what you're doing, but you, you don't really reflect on anything until after it's all over. What was that experience like for you the first time you had to pull a trigger when there was somebody on the other end of it? Uh, it was super close quarters, and I had turned the corner, and there was a guy with an RPG that was facing down another alley, um, and I, I just stitched him up, and I, I didn't, I didn't allow training to, uh, to dictate how many rounds I shot into this guy. <laughs> uh, I was, you know, it's, it's supposed to be two in the chest and, and one, one in the head. It's called yeah. a failure drill, you know. Yep. Uh, I didn't, I didn't do that. Uh, I must have stitched this guy up with about six or seven rounds, um, and I guess the reason I did that was. I was uh, there was a, a, a sense of nervousness, uh, a sense of wanting to live and and wanting to make this other person die so that you can live, um, and then after that, you know, it was everything was you know doorways, windows, watch for hands, you know, watch for people, um, and you do start understanding and and you are more keen on that the minutia of combat because once you're in some of these uh, massive gunfighting scenarios. Uh, the minutia is actually what saves you. The the small idiosyncratic detail that most everybody would shuck off, um, that's the kind of stuff that people actually start paying attention to because it just looks odd. Um, and in combat, it's actually kind of a neat thing to uh, to be able to be that hypersensitive to see that uh, and then to recognize it as a threat or as something odd and then continue or adjust your mission as according. A lot of people that I've spoken to over the years uh, handle the death part of war differently. And, you know, you talk about firing six or seven rounds into a guy at first and you make sure he's gone. You make sure he's dead. The threat is neutralized and you kind of breathe a sigh of relief and you move on. And then as that behavior becomes more repetitive, people do it you know, with ease a lot quicker. I mean, did it, did it ever get to you? Did it ever bother you the nature of war, so to speak? No, um... The only time it bothered me was the September 11th, 2004. Uh, and that was the day, well, September 12th, 2004. And that was the day that um, it was pure accident and, you know, the investigation was done and, you know, it was found that I wasn't in the wrong, but um, a child died because of, uh, because of a shot I made. And uh, so that, that didn't take its toll until way later down in my life, but, uh, I always remembered that as the one thing that really, um, really stood out, and uh, that was that was the last gunfight of the deployment. I immediately went back to Camp Ramadi, uh, which or it used to be called Junction City when we were there, and then it turned into Camp Ramadi. Um, so I went back there, and uh, and I kind of lamented on that for a little while, but then realizing that I've got to help my boys get home, and we've got to do all these logistical things and push through these processes and customs and blah blah blah, you know. So there's there's a lot of the mind numbing. Um, logistics at the end of a deployment that you do that actually kind of keep you uh, keep your mind off of it. And I didn't, you know, I didn't think about it very much after that. Uh, I I laterally moved to 0211 um, directly following the Ramadi deployment, and uh, I continued on from there, uh, and then went out in uh, support of GWAT uh, for OIF and OEF. Uh, so it, you know, it never really took its toll until I left the Marine Corps completely, and that's when I saw uh, some of the regret 
uh, some of the, you know, playing the scenarios over and over in your head. I didn't play them over a lot uh, during the time, but I, I definitely had uh, massive time for reflection on the back end after I got out. Well, I, I do want to get to that uh, down the road here for a moment. But And by the way, folks, GWAT, Global War on Terror, I mean, it's just a, it's a, a acronym for it. One of the monikers that your unit had, 2nd Battalion, 4th Marine Regiment, was the Magnificent Bastards. But you also ended up with a different moniker, uh, the Bloodiest Battalion in the Marine Corps, because of all the losses that you guys sustained during this first six-month deployment that you were part of. Um, tell me about you know, the first one and you know, secondary and third ones after that, and, and what is the feeling as that starts to happen? Uh... You know, the first one was scary because it was a Fox guy and it was super close to home. And I uh, and we we all kind of knew him. He was a truck. He was a truck guy. He drove a lot of a lot of our, uh, our Humvees and whatnot. Um, so people knew him. Um, it hit close to home. It was. I remember being scared. Uh, I remember laying in my rack one night. Uh, just you know, I think I cried a couple times. I was scared. Um, I think there's a lot of self preservation there. But then realizing, you know, you can't really be too scared. You have to. You have to allow that fear to help you uh, through combat. And then uh, on April 6th, when we lost uh, a host of other guys from Golf Company um, and Echo Company, it started getting even more real. But at the same token, it you know we it almost to me it almost seems it almost seemed surreal. Um, you'd hear these names of these guys that were your drinking buddies. Uh, and they go off to other companies, and, you know, they're off in different AORs. So you, you don't get to see them every day. And, you know, the last memory you have with that person was drinking a beer on a catwalk on the barracks before you were leaving, uh, and you never get to say goodbye to that person. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, humbling that happens. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of reflection on that. And, you know, at the end of the day, uh, you come home from a mission, and you, you come back to your, your, your fob, and you just kind of, you know, sometimes it's a quiet day. I mean, if there were lo- if there were significant losses that day, it was a quiet day. Uh, some people went to the went to this little makeshift gym. We were using cinder blocks to put on the end of bars for bench pressing, and um, so we would just you know people would work out, people would go to the shooting range and just you know practice. Um, it was everybody dealt with it in their own way, but I do remember I do remember as we continued to lose casualties or lose men, and more men became casualties. I do remember later, just almost to a point, just every time I, it would come over the radio that another KIA or, uh, you know, here's another one. Um, I, I remember just saying, well, that fucking sucks. Let's, let's just keep going. I um, hope you can learn from it, I guess. I mean, you hope, you, can, you hope it doesn't happen to you, and it's selfish a little bit for sure. Uh, you, do, you hope it doesn't happen to you. You hope it doesn't happen to your men. But at the same token, if it does, you also have to understand that this is this is the price of doing this business and you need to conduct business thoroughly and you need to do it correctly uh in order to save as many people as possible uh the enemy has other plans for you and so you know whatever plan you have doesn't survive first contact we know that um but you have to be prepared to lose many people and and i think that uh i think that was lost on guys going in but then i think we rapidly understood that and then after understanding that it actually created um, uh, an amount of violence and almost uh, a wherewithal, but almost a, uh, a negligence uh, as you were going through it, because we already understood that we were dead, uh, because it can happen to anybody. So if you, if you embrace the idea of actually being dead, 
and understanding that you are already dead. Um, life becomes sweeter later on, uh, but at the same token, you're able to commit to what others would consider atrocities and you consider work uh, during that day, and that's how you have to do it. So there is a numbing uh, piece to it. You do become numb to some of it, um, but you also take those things and then continue to build your leadership style or your, your men and your unit uh, to be the most cohesive it possibly can be. All right, John, there's a lot here. I, I want to go through a couple of things. One, I want to step back to the moment where you talked about uh, after you had the first loss that you were in your bunk and you, you were afraid. And I think a lot of people, especially civilians listening to this, don't think that we get scared. And I think that's just silly. I mean, we're, <laughs> well, we're, <that's> we're, <laughs> we're all scared. I mean, look, nobody, none of us want to die. No, no one goes into combat wanting to come out on the wrong end of it. I mean, that's, that's just, I mean, again, that's, that's something that I think is a, is a silly thought. So we, we experience fear like everybody else. It's just a question of how we handle it. And I, I do think it's very, for lack of a better term, noble of you just to freely admit it because a lot of people in our, in our line of work don't want to admit it. Because it just it, it breaks down our facade that we're the toughest guys and we can handle all this stuff and, and, and you know we're well-trained soldiers, men and women, and all this other stuff. So I, I commend you for being able to, to express that so freely. But what I sure, think no, absolutely. What I think is, is paramount for people to understand, when you talk about thinking of yourself as dead, and, and I've mentioned this before, in essentially coming to grips with your own mortality, look, when, when losses mount up, there, there gets to be a sense, an, an individual sense of my number is going to get called. Like you, we can't keep throwing the dice and not crap out. The odds start to go against you. And there are days you can wake up and you just feel it like today's your day. Today's your number is going to be called. You can't gamble again. You can't go out there uh, and play with fire and not get burned. And so with that, I think... You know, people deal with coming to grips with their own mortality differently. Some guys take it out in a violent way. As you said, they just go bananas and pull the trigger on everything. Um, Other guys, you know, kind of just try to be extra careful, I think, sometimes. And other people just like, for me, John, it was was just let your training kick in. And I I always remember I said a prayer, just let me do what I'm trained to do. Let me take care of my men first and me later and, and, and let the chips fall they may. And I'm okay with however it works out. Like that's the kind of. Yeah, I said that before every before every patrol. I said that, and as we were walking out of the out of the firm base and leaving the wire, uh, that was almost verbatim what I would say to myself. Uh, I'd say, you know, if you got to do it, and and somebody's got to die, let it be me, and and you know, let it be me, like saving my men, or at least let it be me and not one of my men. And the other thing too, I always said was, don't ever let me show fear or experience it like don't let it affect my decision making because i didn't want to ever be in that moment where i had to make a decision and fear paralyzed me so i always prayed that training kicked in because i didn't ever want to be i I didn't I, i don't know if i could have ever lived with the guilt that if i had paused in fear and something bad happened to one of my soldiers that i would have carried that around me forever and i don't think i would have ever been able to overcome it i mean that's just that that's i think the worst part of it yeah, I, I think so, too. And, you know, luckily, and, and for me, I, I was never really crippled by fear. Um, I did accept that it was an emotion that you're going to have. Combat is not a normal thing. Mortal combat is not normal for people. You don't wake up and just go out and just decide that you're going to go kill people or get in some massive gunfight. These are not normal instances or circumstances. But that abnormality actually creates uh, an amount of, of fear which is usable 
uh, and keeps you on your toes. It keeps you a little bit more hypervigilant. Uh, it, it, it allows you to maneuver a little bit uh, more successfully because you are understanding your own mortality, your squad or your team's mental or uh, mortality. You're understanding these things. So even though some things may be calculating, some things may not be calculating, you're using some of that fear to help drive you uh, through that into confidence, into courage, into, you know, just standing up and doing it every day after day after day until either your number's called or you get to go home. When the losses started to mount, was there ever a point where emotionally it got to be too much? The, the time that it really sunk the, entire, the entirety of Fox Company was when we lost uh, two of our scout swimmers. We're an amphibious unit, and so uh, we have a, a host of scout swimmers, assault climbers, and, and coxswains that drive our little black boats. And so we, we actually did an, an amphibious operation. Um, the undertow from the dam, the dam, had, the dam walls had been open, and uh, the undertow from that wasn't, uh, the current wasn't seen. We didn't know that it had been done. Uh, and so we lost two swimmers that night in an amphib operation going to uh, going to search an island, and uh, we didn't we didn't find them for it had to have been three days or four days. And we the operation I believe was on May second. I don't think we found our first guy until May fourth or May fifth. So there's a few days in between us finding them, and we thought that they might have just gotten swept down river. Uh, and so, of course, that that uh, that enacted these huge search and rescue operations by everyone from Tier 1 operations all the way down to the lowest of the low. Everybody was out searching for them. I mean, we were using all sorts of uh, platforms and everything to, to find these guys. And finally, we uh, we brought in Navy divers to the site of, uh, to the site of where we splashed swimmers, and uh, we found both of them. And it was Dustin Schrage and, and Jeff Green, and we found both of them. Uh, and then, you know, that really that that hit Fox Company hard uh, because we're an amphib company. We pride ourselves on having these really awesome amphibious capabilities, and then here we are doing these amphibious operations in Iraq in a combat zone, and uh, we lose two of our best swimmers, and it uh, two of the greatest guys you could ever hope to meet in your life, and it it hurt, uh, and it hurt. It hurt the whole of Fox Company from the leadership all the way down. It was a, it was a tough time after that. It was, uh, you know, operations have to continue. Uh, things have to continue going forward. But it, it, the the general disposition of a Fox Company man after that was was a whole lot more somber. So when you finally get out of there, what's the general feeling of everybody? Is it relief that you're going home, or is it sadness that there's so many guys aren't coming with you? You know, we we sat in some chapel on Junction City, and a chaplain came in, and we wrote down. This is the only thing we did for some sort of like after action. We wrote down the names of everyone we knew that had been killed in action during the Battle of Ramadi, and then that was it. That was all we did. And then we we I we got on planes. We went down to went down to Kuwait. Um, then we went through customs, and then we were on a a big 747 flying home. Uh, we touched down to March Air Force Base, and everybody started screaming and hollering, hooting, hollering. It was great, and people were drinking beer on the back of the bus going back to Pendleton. Um, we were just really, you know, we were really happy to be home. And when it really hit me, and 
uh, I think it hit a lot of guys that day was when we got back to Pendleton and we saw the the Gold Star families of our fallen that were there that came to see us home, knowing that their sons weren't home, but to see us home. Wow. And that's when it really hit us. And it's, you know, you're, you're, you're looking at the mother, the sister, the daughter, the wife of uh, a guy that didn't come home, and here you are surrounded by all these cheering and happy families, and and they're not, and they're trying to be strong, and uh, they're, they're trying to, you know, show support, but at the same time, you're really there to show support for them and just, you know, try to tell them exactly what their son meant to them, their 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 husband, whatever, what that person meant to them, to to you. And it's a, it was a tough day. And then from then on, you know, there was, there was a couple weeks of, you know, administrative work and leave and all that, and then everybody came back together, and, and then, you know, you just start training for the next mission. Did you talk to any of the Gold Star family members? What did you say? How did that interaction go? John Collins was in second platoon, and I didn't know him well because I was in third platoon. Um, I didn't know him well, but I went up and uh, I was on the I was on the QRF for or the quick reaction force for the medevac for uh, John Collins when he was killed by a sniper, and uh, we thought he was alive when we got to the aid station, uh, but it, it you know it, he wasn't um, a, a single round to the to the head is, you know, it's, it's almost a surefire way to, you know, make sure somebody's dead. So we thought he was still alive, given the medevac information we had been uh, given. So uh, I went up and talked to uh, Mrs. Collins and uh, just, you know, I broke down a little bit and tried to tell her I was sorry. Um, and that, you know, it's a, I, I, I don't even remember what I said. I, I remember saying, I'm sorry. I remember she hugged me and she said it was okay. And, then John Collins' squad actually came up, and she had uh, little little gift bags and goodie bags filled with pictures and all sorts of stuff for each one of the guys. So, um, you know, that was just that was just a really rock star thing for her to do uh, on the back end is to you know make um, you know come to terms with it, have a little bit of closure, meet the guys that were with him, and to uh, you know to be embraced as family. It's uh, it's unreal. I I don't know. You know, we lost guys on my first deployment, and uh, I, I never had to meet a, a Gold Star family member. And, and I don't know what you say. I don't, I don't know how the guilt doesn't overcome you. Um, you know, and there is a lot of survivor's guilt. You know, I mean, there's a lot of people who deal with it. There's a lot of us who, who struggle with the fact that we're here and someone else isn't. And uh, I don't know the answer to that. That's a really tough one, John. I don't, I don't know the answer either, brother. Um, but I do know that uh, I got fed up with uh, with the way my life was going and, and what I put myself through, and that's when I decided I would change it and I would I would, I would start walking and, and meeting with those people and meeting with the men I served with and meeting with Gold Star families. And, you know, whatever conversations I would have, I would have on the fly, and we would just go. But everything came from the heart, and um, this, was a, this was a journey that meant the world to me. It meant a lot to uh, the Gold Star families that I met with. It meant a lot to the men that I, that I served with and, and walked to and met with. Um, it was just something that was, it was reinvigorating for, for everybody that served in 2-4 during Ramadi to know that there was a guy out there who had been hurting to that degree, uh, and to take a lot of those different emotions and say, all right, man, I'm going to, I'm going to put feet to pavement and I'm going to walk and I'm going to see you and I'm going to, you know, (laughs) I'm going to try to heal and I'm going to try to do it, you know, without the alcohol, without the, the, without the, the bad things that we end up finding ourselves doing mm-hmm. to try to use as coping mechanisms. 
Um, well, and I, so I started doing that instead. I, I don't want you to get too far ahead of yourself here because I, I do want – there's a point in between Sorry. that – that's okay. It's all right. I mean, you know, we, we people are going to know the story by, at the end of this regardless, but there's a point in between that led you to the decision to walk. So you said earlier that – you know, you didn't really feel the effects of some of the things that happened on your deployment until after you got out, after your eight years are over. So remember, you enlisted in 2001. Right. It's now 2009. You've served your term. You've served your country. You went to war. You've come back. You've decided you're going to get out of the Marines. Why did you decide to leave, and what was next for you at the time? I was in Africa, and I was in Uganda in 2007 uh, with a small team, and uh uh, I had heard about the post-9-11 GI Bill. Now, I had always desired to go to college, but my grades weren't good in high school, and I knew that. Um, I, I wouldn't have even gotten into a community college with my high school grades. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> so I, when I heard about this post-9-11 GI Bill and, you know, the big Benny package that comes with it, they pay your full freight, they give you a, you know, a living stipend, they pay for your books. I was like, man, that sounds amazing. Uh, so from about 2007 forward until 2009, that was in my head. Uh, and so on my last deployment, I was in uh, Iraq again in uh, 2009, and I just decided I would apply for colleges. Uh, I started applying. I got into University of Maryland. Uh, I ended up going there the fall or the spring semester 2010. Uh, I got out and decided I wanted to major in Arabic. And then when I got to uh, when I got to University of Maryland, I I saw they had a Russian program. I had Met a couple Russians along the way, a couple uh, couple Ukrainians along the way, guys that you know spoke Russian to each other, and I, I thought it was a cool language. Uh, I knew a couple words, but nothing nothing of even you know conversationalist tone. Uh, so I decided I would double major, and I would say, screw it, let's learn Arabic and Russian. I had been uh, I had been learning Arabic on my own for you know almost the the full nine years that I was in uh, the Marine Corps, or the full eight years I was in the Marine Corps. Um, and so it just kind of seemed like a no-brainer, uh, and that's really what I wanted to do. And then I didn't know what I wanted to do on the back end of that. Uh, I always thought the CIA would be a great option for me. Um, but then everything kind of went south. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, for the record, the only Russian I know is what I saw in Rocky Four. so uh, I know more Arabic just from being there in the Middle East, as I, uh, much like you do, much like a lot of us do, just out of uh, necessity. But uh, so you sure. get you start going to school, and do you remember the moment in time when things started to take a turn for the worse? It was the second. It was the second semester. Um, I had gotten into the uh, intermediate uh, Arabic program. Uh, I really thought that I was kind of above the law here. You know, I already knew a lot of Arabic. I didn't. I didn't study a lot, and instead, I found myself uh, walking the two hundred meters from my house to the bar. Uh, and started making friends with the bartenders and and you know bouncers and whatnot. And so next thing you know, I was I was in that bar every day. And uh, I would go after class. I would meet with classmates. And at first, it wasn't the biggest deal. But then I noticed uh, after a while, I was I was downing by the third by the third and fourth semesters. I was on to three bottles of Jameson a day, starting wow. at five o'clock in the afternoon, Whoa. finishing finishing the last bottle at midnight and then walking down to the bar and running up another 60 or $70 bar tab at the bar. Oh, and that Lord. went on for, that went on for about a year. Um, I got a DUI and then, uh, and then I kind of, it kind of knocked me, knocked me for a loop, but I, I kind of got away with it here a little bit. I got a probation before judgment on the first one. And as long as I didn't, you know, do anything bad inside a year, I'd be okay. 
Um, and then I get a second DUI almost a year to the day uh, from the first DUI. And at that point, I wasn't even going to school anymore. I was registering for classes, um, and then I wouldn't even go. And then I would just spend the day at the bar. I mean, did at what point did you realize this is out of control? Uh, the second DUI, uh, I didn't go to jail, and rightfully I should have. I didn't hurt anybody. I didn't. I didn't hit anybody. I didn't get in an accident. But I had a second one inside the probationary period. Now, for whatever reason, uh, and I, it's still unclear to me, the, the cop didn't take me to jail. Um, I told him as soon as I got out of the car, I was like, I'm drunk, take me to jail. I'm screwed, like my life's over. And uh, he didn't. He took me to the station, booked me for a DUI, and then he drove me home. And when I got home, uh, I decided that life wasn't really worth living anymore. And I decided I would uh, empty a medicine cabinet into my stomach. So I started swallowing pills, realizing that that pr- my stomach started hurting, realizing I didn't really want to go out this way. Uh, I kind of snapped into a almost a sobering moment and started puking pills up. I called a friend. Uh, she came over, and then I, uh, then I went to the Baltimore VA hospital and checked in there. I said, hey, listen, I just swallowed a boatload of pills. I tried to kill myself. Um, I'm still kind of drunk. Uh, I need I need help, and they they put me into a uh, put me into the sixth floor in Baltimore in the VA hospital in Baltimore, and I stayed there under psychiatric evaluation for I don't know four or five days, and then uh, was released. And uh, from that moment on, I, I decided I would uh, I would I would start this new thing, and it was because of a guy named Mike Beatty who uh, started something called Legacies Alive. This is November of 2014 when I when I was in this hospital, and uh, he was scheduled to finish a walk across the country. He had walked 7,007 kilometers, and that's one kilometer for each person that's been killed in Iraq or Afghanistan since the 01 kickoff. And uh, he was scheduled to finish on the day of the Army-Navy game at M&T Bank Raven Stadium in Baltimore. So there was a lot of fanfare about it. There was quite a few news articles that were coming out about him. And since I was only a state north of him at, at that time, um, there was, you know, that news was, was being broadcast all over. And so I, I just knew then, I was like, he's doing this. Like, I've got to do something. I've got to do this. And I got it in my head. And when I got out of the, uh, I got out of the, the hospital, I was 308 pounds. And I decided I would, uh, I would just go to the gym every day and I would ride my bike and, uh, I went from 308 pounds to 188 pounds oh uh, in about God. Ten, yeah, about ten and a half months. Uh, and then I decided, okay, now what's next? Now, now you just now you have to do the thing you promised yourself you were going to do. Now you got to pick up and go. And so I decided September 11th of 2015 would be the day that I walk. And you know, before you start the, the walk journey, <laughs> let me ask you. Let me, I mean, when did you know? that the pain was too much? When did you know that it was everything that you did and saw in your deployments that was consuming you? Um, did, did you figure that out while you were going through it or not until after? Uh, I, I, knew I, had, I knew I had something going on. Uh, I, knew, I knew the pain was very real when every night uh, the drinking ended in these massive fits of sobbing uh, alone in a basement um, in, in an apartment I was renting. Um, just sobbing uncontrollably for hours, uh, just drunk and crying. And, 
and that's when I knew things were bad, but I didn't stop drinking because it almost, and I can remember this, I can remember feeling it, it almost felt good to drink and to um, escape it, only to realize that those the real issues are going to come flooding back in the morning, and they're going to add on a 10-pound hangover. But, um, you know, the only way to, to you know, I guess, cope with it at that point is to continue the process. And so... For a lot of time, I just stayed drunk, and I talked about my guys a lot, but uh, I don't think I, I even formed coherent sentences uh, when I was speaking to others about it. Uh, and at that time, I just became a sniveling mess. And uh, so a lot, of it was, uh, a, a lot of it was understanding that there was a, there was a problem uh, with my coping mechanisms, not with alcoholism so much, but more just using this thing to, to numb everything. Um, and so... That's when I realized there was an issue, but uh, I also wasn't ready to let go yet. Did any of the uh, issue with that little girl that got killed come back to you? Oh, it was a, it was a, it was a boy, but oh, sorry, um, a boy. yeah that that uh, that that started going down a lot more. I started having a lot more thoughts about that, um, especially after my son was born, um, and then understanding you know I've, I've taken a life away from a father, and is uh, that that's a tough thing to. That's a tough thing to, to kind of grasp or to go through. Um, and I didn't do it well, uh, but at the end of the day, um, yeah, a lot of those things did start coming back a lot more, and, uh, and it hurt. But uh, I, didn't, I didn't know any other way to, to help it out. And, uh, you know, my, my parents were basically paralyzed by me. I mean, they couldn't help me. Uh, no one could. Uh, I wasn't really willing to help myself at that point either. Um, and so I just became this violent thing, and I would have these massive outbursts of anger. And uh, I can't tell you how many times I got in fights in, in college bars in Maryland just beating up little fraternity kids that said one wrong thing to me about the military. It was on. Um, and so, you know, the, the explosive anger started happening, the, uh, the constant fights, the degradation of relationships, all of it just kind of it just kind of steamrolled itself into this big ball of chaos. And I was comfortable in it. Um, but nobody else around me was, and that's when it got scary. All right, so September 11, 2015 rolls around. You, you've decided that you're going to change your life for the better, and you're going to do what you promised you would, and that's go visit the Gold Star families. But obviously, you're, you're, not, you're not going in the most direct route. <laughs> no, no. It was, uh, it, the, the walk took me from Maryland down to Florida, over to Texas, and then I flew back for a VA meeting, uh, a couple of VA uh, visits to, to try to work on this pension and, and, you know, benefits thing. And then come back to the stop point and then through Colorado to Nebraska to South Dakota to Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, Washington, down the western seaboard. And I ended at the 5th Marines War Memorial in Camp Pendleton on December 12th of 2016. So, so the route was, uh, was indicative of, of where my men lived, where Gold Star families were. Um, and I just, I didn't plan a lot of it out. I kind of called the, I called a bunch of people and just shot up Facebook posts because I'm friends with so many of my guys that were, uh, into four with me, all these brothers that are on, we're all on Facebook to try to connect with each other. So I would just, you know, shoot out these Facebook, uh, inquisitions and say, you know, Hey, where are you? Where do you live? Give me your addresses. And I, I just kind of went from one to the next to the next and then just kept going. So you didn't have the whole route planned out ahead of time. I mean, did you have a cell phone with you, a GPS? What'd you do? No, I, I didn't have the whole rap, the whole route planned out. Uh, it, it, most of it was um, just, you know, 
by sheer whatever luck, if you want to call it. Um, and uh, I used uh, I used a GPS on my phone sometimes. Uh, I just picked up a, a state map, a state road map uh, for each uh, state I was in, and then I would use that. Uh, you're not allowed to walk on interstates in any uh, in any of the United States except for Montana from Bozeman to Spokane Valley in Washington because it's the only road up there. Um, but other than that, you're not allowed to walk on interstates. So I would walk county roads, state roads, uh, trails. Um, I'd walk all sorts of different places, but I, uh, that's just kind of the, the roads I would take. So as you're starting to walk, just kind of give me the synopsis of what's going through your mind each day. The first couple of weeks, I didn't think I was going to make it, and I really thought that I had done something wrong. Um, I really didn't. I, I, I started doubting myself. Um, I didn't. I didn't think I was going to make it. Uh, my feet were blistered beyond anything I had ever experienced in the infantry, um, and so I'm. You know, I'm, I'm pushing 70, 70 pounds on a thirty mile a day pace. Uh, that's that's ten and a half to eleven hours of walking a day. Wow. Uh, only taking about a 30-minute break for lunch or to just kind of sit. And I didn't even want to take those because any amount of time that you let your feet even just kind of rest a little bit, um, there you, you pick back up, you're going to hurt again. So there was a point about two weeks in, I got down to Fort A.P. Hill down there in Virginia uh, and knew that I was I was going to quit. And I called my mother and I said, you know, hey, I, I, I've made a mistake here. Of course, she says to me, you know, you're only two and a half, three hours away. I can come pick you up tomorrow. Um which is massively humbling when you when you look at that and go, wow, I've been on the road for two weeks and my mother can come pick me up tomorrow if that is <laughs> if case needs be. So, uh, she, you know, she just gave me a couple words of wisdom and said, you know, why don't you keep going? Go to Virginia Beach, visit with your first brother that you want to do, uh, and then and then if you still want to quit after that, then then I'll, you know, we'll send a plane, we'll send a train, you, you know, we'll get a car, we'll, we'll come pick you up, whatever. And right there, I knew that I was given this out, and I was given this. I was given this option to quit, and it felt bad. Uh, it all. It just. I felt poorly that I had. That I. That I. It would come to this, and so I decided right there as I hung up the phone. You know, hey, love you, mom. No worries. Uh, I'll call you soon. I hung up that phone, and I didn't look back. Um, I knew at that point I was going to have to push through a lot more pain to get those feet really conditioned, uh, but it didn't matter anymore, and it was time to. It was just time to keep putting your money where your mouth was because, you know, you said you were going to do this thing, and there were a lot of guys that that leaned in and said, you know, this is awesome. And there there were donations from people on a GoFundMe thing that I had started, and, you know, who am I to be if I can't complete this? And then what do I do? I give this money back, and, oh, God, it would have been horrible. And, you know, all these thoughts are flowing through your head, and you're like, you know what? Just don't quit. Just don't quit. And that's all I could ever tell myself. I would go to bed at night and say, don't quit. Tomorrow you're getting up and you're doing it again. When the would rise, I'd be up, I'd pack the tent, and I'd say, all right, let's go, don't quit. And then every day it was just, don't quit. When you got to your first Gold Star family and you spoke to them, was that reinvigorating for you? Oh, it was amazing. It was uh, it was Dustin Schrake's uh, mother and father, uh, so the Schrake family, and that was one of our uh, scout swimmers that we had lost. And so it was uh, it was amazing. It, 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 really, it really helped to to see uh, almost how proud uh, those families were of you, of their sons, of what is happening. And, and I, couldn't, I couldn't be more proud to be a part of that. And, you know, that's just, uh, once again, it just, it just 
gave me more steam and said, all right, you got to keep doing this. This has to keep happening. So it was a year, three months and a day that you walked for. When it was all over, what was your... It's all over, that is correct. <laughs> when it was all over, what was your first thought? What were you feeling? Uh, I walked into the gates of Pendleton, and there were 2,200 people there-ish. Um, and I was floored. My son was there. Uh, my family was there. Uh, and you got to remember, this is a family that has seen me go down some of the darkest holes that they could imagine. Uh, and to come back from that and to see them actually be proud of me and to uh, to actually start seeing and, and, you know, linking stories with faces and, and everybody just met everybody. And it was just, it was, it was a great, it was a feeling of togetherness, a feeling of family, a, a true feeling of family, um, a true feeling that, you know, hey, now my folks know, um, you know, who I was and what this means to me. And, you know, I was fortunate enough to have my brother there as well. And, you know, he was a Marine as well. And so he got to see that as, as well. And that was, you know, I think ultimately I, inclusion would be the word I guess I would use. I, it felt it felt inclusive. Um, it felt like everything was done. Um, and it felt like I had done right by my brothers. Where are you now with everything? So I'm waiting on a college acceptance letter from one of the 23 colleges to the Arabic program um, <laughs> to finish up a, a, a transfer program. So I'm, I'm waiting on that. I'm, I'm hoping for UT Austin or Arizona State or, you know, Dartmouth's on the list too, so I applied there. But, yeah, I don't know if Dartmouth's ready for a, for a combat Marine or not, so we'll see what happens. No, but I, um, meant, I meant where are you emotionally with everything? <laughs> oh, well, I mean, honestly, it, it, it's... I don't think about a lot of it anymore. Um, not to say that I don't want to, um, but I feel a lot of closure. I feel like a lot of this has given me the ability to lay a lot of my guys to rest. And, you know, I still, we are, I'm in constant contact with everyone that's still alive and, and guys that we serve with. Um, you know, we have a support network in us that is, uh, that is completely different than anything you're going to find at a VA or anything. Uh, and, you know, you've been in combat with these guys. These guys listen to you. These guys trust you. You trust them. Um, and so there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of healing going on uh, through those sort of support networks and reunions and things of that nature. But ultimately, I feel better. Um, I can tell you I'm not the man that I was. I don't have these desires to, uh, to, to self-destruct. I don't have these desires to go out and get in fights. I don't have the... Uh, I just don't have that anymore. I have the desire to to continue to better myself and to continue to hold the name of Second Battalion, Fourth Marines, the Magnificent Bastards, in high esteem and, and high regard. I continue to to want to um, you know help bolster that reputation and, and not be a dirtbag that you know does something to uh, to to hurt it because that is that's the unit I cut my 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 teeth on in combat and um, you know it's it's one of the best units in the in the Marine Corps and. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be a part of it, and I just want to do right by them, and I want to continue to do right by them, and and uh, help bring them more uh, more credit, more uh, more more awareness on you know what these boys went through, and uh, and I can only do that by by being positive and by being honest with myself and being honest with anyone that ever asked me a question. Well, I'll leave you with a word. I mean, inspiring is it? Uh, I w- I would tell you that 
You know, I saw you. I just want to give you a hug, brother. I mean, you know, just because uh, I'm, I'm proud of you. I'm proud of what you've done. I'm proud of what you've accomplished. I'm proud of that you you overcame your own personal demons uh, and, and you did something remarkable uh, to, as you said, to lay your fallen brothers to rest and, and to come a peace with that. And some of us who have put on a uniform and dealt with similar stuff that you have never get rid of it. And, and it carries around with us for the rest of our lives. And the fact that you've found some peace with it, uh, I think is remarkable for you. Um, and I know uh, just by reading the responses and, and reading up on you prior to, you know, sitting down to, to talk with you, I, I know those Gold Star families and your fellow Marines are proud of your efforts. And, and they certainly look at you as a guy who represents them well. So, and in the time that we've spent talking, I, I, I get a sense that they're proud of you. Just, I, I would be proud if I was one of them. I mean, you know, I'm an Army guy. I, I didn't do the Marine thing like you did, but it's not hard to see that what you've done uh, and, and what you've tried to accomplish in, in doing your walk and your journey across the country was symbolic. It was heartfelt. And, and uh, you know, I thank you, brother, man. No worries. Thank you. Really. It's, uh, you know, it, you start looking at it, and, and it, of course it's service-specific because those are my brothers, but, you know, there was a lot of different people that I met on this road, a lot of different Army cats and Air Force and, and Navy and, and all service components, and each one of them was, you know, it, it wasn't necessarily just about uh, the two four guys from the Battle of Ramadi. You know, they you could tell that it, it, it they felt like it was for them, too, and, and it was. It absolutely is, because, you know, I'm not the only guy that goes through these things. Um, there's so many of us that go through it, and there's so many guys that that are trying to find coping, coping mechanisms that work. They're trying to find uh, a purpose in life, and... Um, and for someone to be out there just saying, nah, you know what, I'm going to do this. Uh, it, it, it gives, it gives other people some hope. And, you know, I don't, I don't say that lightly. I don't say that with any sort of, uh, condescension. And I definitely don't say it with any ego because I'm not some great white hope, but what I did do definitely helped inspire others to, to get out and do things. I've watched guys, um, contact me and they, you know, they're, they're back in the gym. They're, they're walking, they're doing things that are, um, self-productive and, and, and constructive. And so I'm, you know, it, it's humbling and I'm, I'm just glad that, you know, my knees didn't give out. And even if they did, I would have had to crawl across this country, but um, it was, it was, it was time to do this and it was time to show others and it was time to show myself. Well, I wish you nothing but the best of luck, uh, I, you know, for your personal life when it gets back on track and you get your degree and you go into another field I know you'll excel the way you did at being a Marine. And, and again, we're all proud of you, brother, man. And thank you for everything that you've done. Thanks, brother. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.